tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Well, hello, hackaroos, and welcome to another edition of Hacks on Tap. I'm here with the esteemed Dr. Waldo Gibbs, political expert, Democrat, troublemaker, and along with our super special guest today, a graduate of that esteemed university. Where it's Auburn Day on Hacks on Tap. Boy, they're not the Philharmonic, are they? Uh, Auburn, a great university down in Alabama, because our guest today is pollster Dr. David B. Hill, veteran of many of the Republican polling wars and a proud, proud graduate of Auburn University. I believe you still live there, Dr. Hill, down in Auburn, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Uh, I'll give a little bio on you because you're one of these secret consultants that doesn't hog the spotlight like Gibbs. <clears throat> um, so you, you've had a fascinating career because you've crossed this spotlight between academia and uh, and political polling on the Republican side. You taught at Texas A&M, used to run the highly respected Texas poll, taught at University of Florida kansas state your fellow at university of southern uh california longtime consultant you're really kind of an expert on the midwest and the rocky mountain states but also florida work for people like terry branstead in iowa john angler where we worked together in uh michigan and helped elect florida's first hispanic governor the great bob martinez and u.s senator mel martinez basically if your name is martinez and you're running for office you you've got to call uh, dr david hill you pull just about everything. Uh, you have that academic background, too. And for a long time, you, along with our Democratic polling friend, Mark Melman, you both wrote columns in the Hill newspaper. So we're going we're gonna to drill in and try to untangle the mysteries of politics. But let's start with a look at the national scene. Robert, what are you seeing? What's going on? Well, first of all, let me just say, you had me at Auburn University, right? And, <laughs> and God bless you, Murphy, for playing the fight song. We're... Um, we could do an entire podcast on fixing the football team at the moment, but we're going to focus today on something far simpler, and that's national politics. Uh, what are we seeing at the moment? I mean, one of the things that I think is is clear is in the last two months, Joe Biden's average approval rating is up six points. And if you look at that real clear politics average, uh, over the weekend, he hit the, his highest point in 2022, uh, highest point since really late December of 2021. Now, I'm the first one to say I'm not exactly excited about going into battle with 43% or 45%, yeah. but it sure is a hell of a lot better than going into battle at 36 or 37%. Well, he seems to be getting to the average of past presidents who've gotten wiped out in the midterm. So it's the right direction. You know, it, it, it's kind of like the Russian army putting out a uh, bulletin. All right, we've improved the K ration. You know, so I, I, I grant that he's had a little tick up, but Dr. Hill, will it be enough? 
What do you think? What's your midterm uh, projection uh, based on at least what we know about Biden's numbers right now? I sort of felt like we're in a basketball game where neither team can score and uh, <laughs> we're drifting through the third quarter, headed to the fourth quarter, and uh, nothing much is happening. I mean, there, there's, you know, there, there's no top issues that are really dominating that, that camp- campaigns can explore. So I don't know. It just seems like we're in sort of a four corner situation where we're throwing the ball around the court and not much is moving. And, uh, the fact that you might be, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a case where it's a very close race, we may just muddle through right to the end like this, depending on some sort of a last minute, whatever we call the October surprise or November surprise. Have you seen a cycle, a midterm cycle like this? I mean, it does seem very different than what we're used to in a midterm cycle, at least in the past, you know, five or six, where particularly the first midterm cycle of a new president is dominated by a referendum on on him. And this one just seems because of a lot of factors, particularly the Dobbs decision, uh, that that things are really scrambled in a way we 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 haven't seen, and I feel like we're kind of feeling around a bit in the dark on it. Yeah, to me, the 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 key difference here from previous midterms is is really COVID and perhaps to some extent the economy. Uh, people just have lots on their plate, lots to think about, and uh, politics is always, particularly midterm politics, is always kind of a bit down the agenda. But I think it's being forced farther down the agenda than, than usual this time, uh, just because of the economy and COVID and, you know, the back to work, not back to work, all those kinds of real life situations that people are focused on that don't have anything to do with a house race or a Senate race. You know, it's funny. I I get asked a lot by kind of civilians. Well, what do you think is going to happen in the midterms? And I always give the same answer, which is, call the Harry Walker Bureau in New York and hire me and rent a hall and I'll come tell you, you know, I got, I got to earn here. Um, but, uh, this gas I'm pumping with you, pal, isn't cheap, but, but the answer I tend to give, and I'm, I'm going to see what both of you think. And David, you can look at kind of the historical trends. On one hand, there's the historical trend, which is presidents midterm since world war two, they've lost an average of 26 seats in the last three or four elections have been even worse. Um, when you have a fairly weak presidential approval number, which is true with Biden, he's now improved from disastrous to weak, uh, you lose seats. When inflation is high, and it's, a, you know, for the last, what, 30, 40 years record high, you lose seats. And when people are in the wrong track mood, you lose seats generically. In most elections, it's up in the low to mid-60s right now. So all the historical arguments are not good. Then you've got the, is this time different? And that's always a very seductive argument because half the country is hoping it is. And the different argument would be, well, you got young voters who might do no, don't, as you indicated, kind of don't turn out in the midterms. Who cares? Or presidential year voters. Well, maybe they'll show up because they tend to be extremely pro-choice. And we've seen a lot of energy in the special election up in New York and in that Kansas primary where there was a surge in Democratic turnout. So will the road stuff motivate new voters and tilt the scale? That That's one question. Will the fact that the Republicans have candidates who need drool cups in a couple of Senate races, you know, could they be so bad that they get in the way of the wave? Are these new factors enough to bend the, the kind of traditional, most, not all, but almost all 
you know, prior elections go this way. Is it big enough to make a difference or not? If I had to bet, because I don't know, if I had to bet, I'd say no, not in the House, and I'm not even sure in the Senate, but the conventional wisdom is maybe in the Senate. Where do you guys land on that? You're going to bet the new factors? You're going to bet history? Can you repeat the question? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, we we no, only, I, only have an hour, right? I'm we going do. for the Trump uh, thing here for the longest possible windup. No, but I think, look, I, I think a lot of the factors you mentioned are at play, and I think... Uh, I, I think the one set of things that's changed and made the cycle a bit different and likely is going to make the outcome somewhat different is obviously the Dobbs decision that leaked in May and was issued in June. Um, and, and I think we've seen it. And I don't just look at someplace like Kansas, because I think that was a fairly specialized question on a ballot. But I think if you look at some of these special elections, uh, particularly in New York, um, you know, I think something is clearly happening out there. New voter registration is happening out there. Uh, I still think, and I said this at an event over the weekend, I think, I, I still think Republicans are favored to pick up seats, particularly in the House. Um, and we've covered that, uh, Murphy, in our newsletter. I just don't think that the traditional watermark that we've seen is likely to uh, to be achieved. Uh, I do think there's some built-in structural advantages for Republicans, particularly in districts that Trump carried in 2020, but have a Democratic uh, representative that are that are sort of ripe for the Republican taking. But I do think if you look at where the electorate was a year ago and where it is now, it, it's a pretty big shift. And I would think that that red tidal wave that we were getting used to is still going to swamp some that are in low-lying areas, but I don't feel like this is one of those. Let me just say this. I'm not preparing for the shellacking I felt in 2010. Uh, okay, Dr. Hill, you're the uh, you're down at the Institute, as we say down there in the South. You're the numbers man. How do you call it, history or, or different? Uh, let me give you one difference from other midterms. And first of all, let's go back to why is it that the president's party typically loses at the midterm election? And I think it's almost like I was reading about the Italian election yesterday. They were saying, oh, they're going to elect a, a, a right-wing leader, prime minister. Uh, and why are they doing it? Well, it's not because they've lurched to the right. It's because they just forever are in love with the next person up. It's sort of like the backup quarterback in football. Everybody wants to see the backup come in. The one thing that's different this time is, is that the specter of Trump, hangs over this election. Normally, the president goes away. And so it becomes a, a referendum on do you want more and more of the guy that's in the White House now? Well, now there's a slightly different dynamic to me to this midterm election. Is it do you want the guy that's in the White House now? Or do you want that other guy that just won't go away, uh, kind of reintroducing himself and, and grabbing more power? So I think that really changes the chemistry of this sort of macro sense of what's up for grabs in this election. Yeah, so this could be different. Um, you know, I tend to stick with history, but then again, I've got a lot of worthless American buggy whip company shares here I'm looking at. <laughs> so, uh, well, we will see. Well, let's dive into a couple of races. Let me throw something out. I There was a good story in the Times, and there's been other indication, and there's consultant chatter in the Republican world. I'm sure you've heard some of it, David. Uh, most of the paid media, the R's are running now that we're off to the races after Labor Day, is focused on the crime issue. Democrats are soft on crime. They love murderers. You know, So far, they got me. Um, the interesting race that got a lot of attention today in the New York Times, so we're, we're, we'll follow that up a little, is Pennsylvania. 
where, you know, uh, Fetterman has been ahead significantly. The Oz campaign has struggled. But they've latched onto a crime issue because Fetterman has a history of being an advocate for stronger pardons. He's even hired two uh, convicted criminals on his staff. Um, and he's been very upfront about his views on this. And the race is apparently tightening. Is crime going to be the magic issue in the midterm for the Republicans in the suburbs to maybe overcome some of that Trump fear? What do you think? Well, if you look at Pennsylvania, just look at index crime of the states. And I, I took a peek at that. It's really not a high crime state, but that doesn't always carry the day when it comes to public opinion. Sometimes one celebrated crime or just a few celebrated uh, widely publicized violent crimes can make a difference. I'm skeptical, though. I think this is kind of like a sign of, you know, what I would call uh, consultant uh, trigs. They got their bag of tricks that have worked in the past, Willie Horton or whatever it might be. And they're trying to, you know, I tried this, I tried, uh, his health. That wasn't, you know, Fetterman's health. That wasn't necessarily carrying the day. Uh, what else have I got in there? Well, I could do a Willie Horton, a number seven. And, uh, so I think that maybe kind of what, what, uh, this represents. And I, I'm just skeptical. I mean, there's a couple of things where this can even go badly wrong. Introducing crime at this point brings up uh, a whole lot of the kind of specter of guns and gun-related issues, which are not really good in suburban Pennsylvania, I suspect. Yeah, a big reason Toomey won re-election, because we did the IE, we spent about $7 million on the gun issue in the Pennsylvania suburbs, where Toomey was on the right side of it, and it worked. So, I mean, you know, be careful of what you wish for. You might make a, 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 a cry, t- try to attach this, but if you make, if you try to raise crime, on the issue agenda, uh, it could turn around and bite Republicans who probably don't want to have to argue guns in the last two weeks of the election. Robert, before you jump in, just give me a sec. I want to play the ad that Oz is running, and we'll get your blood boiling a little bit here. This is Axelrod, so trick. Mike, here's another ad from a communist. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to play an a ad from Republican challenger Dr. Oz attacking his opponent, John Fetterman. John Fetterman wants to release convicted murderers from prison. He appointed a staffer who wants to eliminate mandatory life sentences for first and second degree murderers. Murderers like Daquan Dickerson, who shot and killed a high school senior from York. Daniel Barrett, who viciously stabbed his wife to death with a steel fire poker. Craig Hines, who killed a young man in a drive-by shooting. We all know Fetterman loves free stuff, but we can't let him free murderers. Okay, well, um, you know, I hope Dr. Oz doesn't do surgery with that technique because he'd need a chainsaw to uh, to cure a minor mole. What do you think, Robert? Um, well, I, I'm 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 inclined to agree with David here. I, I one, I think the ad is. Um, I, I I think there's two things that this the ad calls into question. One is um, it, it's a bit clunky, and I think it might be over the top. And I think that that tagline, we know Fetterman loves free stuff, but we can't let him free criminals. To me, I, I think takes away a little bit of the seriousness of the ad. Um, if I'm doing that ad, I would probably rather have, um, somebody not as an announcer, but as yeah. a, a former victim of a crime doing something as an emotional appeal to camera. That's that's a little bit softer and a little bit more genuine. That one feels 
um, you know, to pick up on some of these sporting analogies that we're using, that one kind of feels like the clock's close to zero. We're at a field goal range and we've got to heave this ball a long way. Um, so I, I think a little clunky again, I, I think, um, it, it's an issue that we know, and I'm sure Fetterman knew was coming. So I presume they've got, um, some good retorts on this, but that one just feels, um, a little desperate or a lot desperate. I, my question for both of you is, you know, we've seen this for a couple of weeks now, the inflation ads have subsided a bit and, to your point, Murphy, when you sent this around for us to think through showing or listening to on the show today, you know, you'd mentioned that, you know, crime was now the the ad issue that was dominating Republican spending. What does that say about inflation as the dominant issue that we've heard about so often? And do you think does that mean inflation has slipped some? Do you think that Republicans feel like the issue of inflation is banked and they want to go to something else? Uh, to motivate yeah. their base. Well, David, you want to start, and then I'll I'll weigh in on that. But I think you're onto something with the pick one from the menu, number seven, free egg roll, because it feels that way to me. That the R's ran a lot of this stuff in 2020 in house races, and well, you can argue that they they did better than uh, expected. They they were running in many cases against uh, Dem progs progressives in the middle of the uh defund the police movement so it had a little more kerosene out there and it might be just back to the future but what do you think well when i I see these ads and i've seen some ads in georgia that have a sort of a similar kind of a feel i don't know if they're from the same production house but uh i see the fingerprints of pollsters on this you test a bunch of issues like they found some of fetterman's greatest hits and so they tested would you be more or less likely to vote for a candidate who released a, a stabbing murderer? Uh, would you be more or less likely to vote for a mother raper? And so people go and say, oh, I'd be less likely to vote for that person. But at right. the end of the day, probably the question they didn't ask was, do you really in your heart of hearts believe that Fetterman approves of stabbing and mother raping and whatever? Uh, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Joe Biden wants inflation, that he doesn't care about inflation as much as you? So the credibility sometimes of these ads is not really tested. It's just testing kind of the shock factor, uh, the the movement factor. And so I think that's what the missing piece here is, is it credible to argue that that Fetterman really doesn't care about these kinds of things, that he's he's all, you know, open the prison doors, let them all out. Yeah, actually, he looks like he could be uh, be in a prison. He's got that big, scary, blue-collar kind of visual vibe, which I think is helping him. You know, he's taking crime down from the inside. To your question, Robert, I don't quite get it um, because I think inflation and kitchen table economics will be the pivot of this election. So I'm not sure I'd take the gas off. Uh, I mean, if I had a, if it was a race in an open seat or a challenger against a Dem who's got a lot of defund the police baggage, then there is a, a play as part of your campaign. And the thing you said that I fear, well, I don't know if because I'm not quite sure who I'm really rooting for anymore, but <laughs> I, I that I fear is, hey, we bank the inflation issue. We can go on to scary murderer tales and no issue was ever banked if it's a good issue you step and stand on it till the end i like to run ads two days after the election about the issue that won just to make sure it got through so that worries me and it could be the um again the problem with the republican party and increasingly the democratic party and i I think david you'd agree is they treat every election like a primary (laughs) even in a general election 
So the votes you already have love that stuff. I would say it surprises me that Republicans haven't just stayed on a message that's been credible for decades, and that is Democrats spend too much money and tax too much. Now, maybe it's because the Republicans have been voting for a lot of that spending. They're hesitant to kind of go down that path. But there is just ingrained in most Americans' minds, not necessarily about inflation, it comes and goes, but the one thing that is a constant for multiple decades is Democrats spend too much money. And it seems like that's a forgotten kind of message here. I just got a telegram from the RNC. They work old school uh, saying, you forgot the charter. We're never supposed to mention that we spent like crazy drunken sailors. Definitely. Uh, I agree on the believability portion of this ad. I mean, and and just for people who listen, you know, oftentimes I'm sure we've all heard this where Pim says, I can't believe we aren't responding to so-and-so on this ad. I mean, they're making this point about blah, blah, blah. They're always on offense, blah, blah, blah. It, it, look, I, I read the newspaper every day. I, I read, I actually read it on the, the internet and the actual paper. Um, you see it every day. You see ads about it every day. Everybody can have a response. It doesn't necessarily mean people believe that response. They don't necessarily believe that ad. And if they don't do that, then you're wasting that that precious ad dollar. And the second thing I'd say about somebody like Fetterman, he's been elected statewide. It, that ad might be more effective if he'd never been on a ballot before, if he didn't have his own sort of persona, even though Murphy doesn't like the, the hoodie and the tattoos, but if he didn't have his own persona with voters, the, the believability might be more, and I'm just not necessarily convinced that, that that's going to work right now. Again, I feel like it's spaghetti against the wall for Dr. Oz. Yeah, I, I would just add one to be a contrarian about it because I, I, I agree with a lot That's of your that. role. I know. Here I am. <laughs> so Fetterman has taken some pretty strong positions. I mean, he yeah. literally hired these two convicted murderers to work on his staff because he thought they were innocent and got a bum deal. And eventually, after a lot of prison time, they got out. And I don't know, maybe there's an argument in their case. I, I'm, I'm not expert in it, but I do know campaigns, and that is a pretty big target. Yeah, I would just be careful that, you know, there are people that have rightly convicted, wrongly convicted. People go to jail, serve their time. That's what the, the state asks of them or demands of them, I should say. And then we've got to figure out how to rehabilitate them and put them back into uh, into society. So I would, you know, I, I think if we started doing. I, I, I totally get the argument. But if you were the the Fetterman press secretary saying what you just said, well, the live at five guys are screaming at you, but they're murderers just in a campaign jungle. It's, uh, I, I don't disagree. I'm just, it's uh, hard to give for, the Mensa answer I'm, there. And, I'm and, trying not know. to get your email to crash. That's the, uh, that's oh, well, the send them all thing. to you. <laughs> Angry letters at robertgibbs.com. Okay. Well, Georgia, you, you're both sons of the South Hill. You live like on the Georgia border, right? You getting in any trouble. You can be over there in five minutes. So you probably I can't turn on the television set without an ad for the Georgia Senate governor's race, just hosing me down. It's, um, I'm <laughs> basted in it every single day. I'm going to start with you because the Georgia race is fascinating. Both the governor's race, a little less fascinating other than what was Stacey Abrams thinking, blowing up her career and a bad bet. But but the Herschel Walker Ralph Warnock race is something to behold. Now you, you're a pollster, you're a son of the South, you live in the media market, and 
coincidentally, you are the man as a grad student, as a rock concert promoter who first brought the Rolling Stones to Alabama. We'll have to dive into that in a little bit. But from all those perspectives, what, what are you thinking about the Georgia Senate race? Well, and I'm a football fan, too. I understand sort of the, the power of football in the Deep South. And even though it's, it's you know, it, it's sort of like even one step worse than Tommy Tuberville in the Senate, uh, the, the specter of uh, Herschel Walker in the Senate, it seems absurdist at first glance. Uh, but the, just I have seen, I, I watch one of the things that you see a lot is uh, on the news clips in Georgia is you'll see people queuing up to have their picture made with Herschel. And it's like having your picture made with, you know, Muhammad Ali or, Jackson. or, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like a big deal. And so at that moment, I'm thinking, well, are they thinking about Herschel's background and, you know, the lies he's told and like, are they even thinking maybe we could have had a better nominee than this? I, I don't think they are. I think it's, it's, so we're going to find out how many really, how many Georgia Bulldog football fans there are, uh, in the state, because I think the specter of that is almost outweighing uh politics i know that's hard from afar for people to believe but football is so dang important especially in the fall i don't think it would be the same way in the spring but there's just a rally around the hero the football the gridiron legend uh that keeps herschel in this race when when really every every kind of bit of rational reasoning about sort of what's going on here would have him you know not even in the game robert what do you think I mean, obviously, we talked about this for a long time. I think it's the most fascinating race uh, in the country, or I think it's the most fascinating state uh, in the country. Um, you know, I'm interested in, you know, a few months ago when we had polling that showed sort of Kemp up, but uh, Warnock up, we, we had this, we surmised, oh, maybe there are these Kemp Warnock voters, um, which seems really kind of hard to grasp. Um, we, again, we saw it in, in some of the public numbers, but you know, if, if you know, obviously just anything really about Georgia, I mean, the people that are, are, are voting for Brian Kemp, the people who have a lawn sign for Brian Kemp just really don't strike me as Kemp Warnock voters. I, I think the split ticketing stuff for me is genuinely hard to see. I think if Warnock's going to win, uh, the likelihood is that you vote for Kemp and then because of what. Uh, David just said you you might skip the Senate race. Uh, you you might laud his uh, his prowess as a former Georgia Bulldog, but you may not think I don't know if he can really be a U.S. Senator. I'm just going to skip that election on my ballot. So I I think this thing's going to be you know pretty pretty close. I'd love what you guys think about just the idea of of split tickets. The one thing I'd also say before I get that answer is. Um, I think two things are going to be important here. We've got a, an interesting and mixed track record around the famous running for uh, uh, for something like for office, right? D David mentioned Tommy Tuberville in Alabama, um, which is <laughs> it is still surprising since he used to kick Alabama's ass, and yet a lot of those Roll Tide fans voted for him to be a U.S. senator. Uh, but I'm also reminded of people like Richard Petty in North Carolina who ran for Secretary of State. And I know that wasn't an easy race for him, and he got into a car accident, and uh, it was uh, some aggressive driving. But, you know, the king of NASCAR didn't didn't win that race in North Carolina. Um, and I think the last question, too, is will debates matter? Do debates matter anymore at all? Will enough people see it 
Um, I, I think the split ticketing and the, de- the debates to me are the most fascinating thing in the last six weeks in this race. Let me make a quick point about Herschel, and then David we're talks uh, ticket splitters with you. One thing I'm seeing in, 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 the, in the Georgia race, beyond the wave will help him. You know, if he's down a point on the polls and all the liberals are relaxing, cut to he'll win. And uh, also cut to Trump immediately talking about him as his favorite vice presidential candidate. So there will be long lines in front of every shrink's office in New York and L.A. and San Francisco Um, because it'll be the double boogeyman from hell theory. Uh, but I, I did the Schwarzenegger race in California, and, and in times of high wrong track, when people think the system's wrong, politics is broken, and they're unhappy, people who are credentialed outside of politics as successful get an extra suit of armor. Because there was a lot of attacks on Schwarzenegger. Oh, come on, he doesn't even know where Sacramento is. What does he know about the budget? And people were like, yeah, but he's the biggest box office draw in the world. He was a businessman. And when, he, when, he, when his driver finds Sacramento for him, he'll blow it up, and that's fine with me. <laughs> so the fact that the establishment, you know, they, they did a dumb ad, the big nuclear bomb was, we're going to get Dianne Feinstein out there, look out. And they did a, a Kim Jong-il spot where she's in the overstuffed chair looking at the camera, people of Earth, don't vote for Schwarzenegger. The more the establishment kind of condemned him as a big, dumb movie star, it, it helped. So the contempt coming out of Washington for Walker from, you know, fancy elitists like my friend Gibbs here, <laughs> it, it's not the weapon they think it is. I'm going to weigh on the tickets footer question. Uh, back in the 80s, when uh, we were going through the massive Sunbelt realignment, that is from, from Arizona all the way over to Florida and the southeast, we were, we were in a transition from Democratic majorities to Republican majorities. We went through the period where people changing parties. And during that time, there was a big debate about, there was a famous book came out called The Ticket Splitter uh, that was sort of saying this was the the key force in American politics. And there was was a lot of uh, skepticism in some minds about this. They really didn't believe that voters consciously sought to split their ticket. That is, they thought about a calculation there that I'm going to let one Republican Democrat as my own means of checks and balances. Uh, they just thought that, yeah, split ticket, split ticket voting is occurring simply because they choose a personality from one party and a, another personality from another party. But I, I really, I came to believe that voters were making a choice to, to split control. They, they, you know, I can't guarantee checks and balances. I can just do much. And I think what's going to happen in Georgia, a little bit from Gibbs here, I'm going to differ a little, is that I really think there are a lot of people that are vote for Brian Kemp and then turn around and vote for Warnock. Now, it doesn't, make, doesn't necessarily make sense, it, just if you think about, you know, ideology and whatever, but I just think people have a hard time now voting for two candidates from the same party. Uh, it, it's, I think there's that for, and I'm talking about like swing voters, obviously the base, that's no problem, but, but people in the suburbs that might be making a kind of a choice. I do think now no one's asked me in Herschel's camp, but I would quit advertising Herschel and sort of say, Hey, we've already got one democratic Senator. Wouldn't it be fair if we had a Republican Senator? Do we want Georgia to weigh in a hundred percent in the United States Senate on the democratic side of the ledger? And I think that would be a powerful argument. And that way you're not voting for Herschel. You're voting against, which is a more powerful word. 
you're voting against democratic hegemony in the Senate from the great state of Georgia. I just think that would be a more powerful argument, but I know there are a lot of people who just don't think voters are that strategic. The more they can get the spotlight off Herschel and let him run on his laurels and make it about send a message to Joe Biden in Washington, the better they're going to be. So I keep predicting my number one conventional wisdom upset is Herschel wins. But we will see and we will follow it. Fascinating point, though, David, a fascinating point that uh, this idea and, I, you know, I think it could be powerful, as you say, the, the idea. I mean, you've got a state that is not all that practiced in voting for Democratic senators, uh, you know, getting them back to sort of what is tried and true for Republicans uh, and, and quite frankly, for a majority of that state is is could certainly be powerful. There's also the Kemp angle. If you've got Kemp Warnock swing voters, you can micro target a Kemp message, which is, hey, I need somebody I can call in the Senate. Help right. me out here. Uh, trust me, I'll, I'll keep an eye on things, you know, and they're already sold on him. All right. Hold that thought. We're going to take a short break, and now a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of Hacks on Tap is sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. But I don't understand, Gibbs. Fill me in. What exactly is Honey for shopping? Honey is a natural substance that's uh, sweet, made by bees, and uh, and you put it in your tea. Is, is that what you wanted to know, Murphy? No, no, not that honey. Everybody knows that honey. I'm talking about the cool honey that helps you shop on the internet. Oh, you said, oh, I misunderstood. You said honey, and I thought you meant honey. Well, clearly the first thing we're going to buy on the internet is a uh, uh, literacy course from my friend Gibbs here. Let me tell you about Honey, because I've actually been reading up on it. I was just trying to set you up. It's a way to use all those coupons. You know when you're buying something online and it says, do you have a coupon, and you don't, and you feel like an idiot because you figure everybody else has a coupon? Honey solves that problem. Yeah, thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds directly to your cart. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. When you check out, the Honey button appears, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons. Wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons that it can find on the site. If Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the prices drop. I mean, it works. I bought a travel charger because I'm on a trip right now. And I probably shouldn't say the brand because we like to get paid for that. But I used a honey code and it cut off. I think I saved like 11%. It was great. And I felt like I was in the club. I'm not paying the, the amateur price. I'm paying the smart money price. And I have to tell you, the honey uh, system is so easy to use. You know, Murphy, that's why the Consumer Confidence Index went up today. You're saving money. Honey doesn't just work on your desktop. It works on your iPhone, too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go, just like Murphy did. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. Yep, you can finally get on the other side of the velvet rope of e-commerce. You got to get it. You will save money. So do yourself a favor. Get Honey for free at... Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hacks. That's joinhoney.com slash hacks. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this important show. We don't recommend something we don't use. Murphy's used Honey, and it's great. It's a good one. That's joinhoney.com slash hacks. Let's head south quickly, and then we'll talk polling a bit to Florida, uh, an old stomping ground of uh, both David's and mine. 
Um, there's a big hurricane coming that can, yeah. that can affect politics into the Tampa Bay, which hasn't had a big one in uh, God, 90, hundred years. Uh, and not just hurricane driven, but in general, that could, that could shake up politics one way or another. It can be for a governor who's on top of it and does a good job of plus, if you're not on top of it, it can be really bad. Uh, what do we think about, um, uh, DeSantis and of course the criticism he's gotten for his his kind of prop move uh presidential primary stunt with the migrants uh in uh, uh Martha's Vineyard and what do we think about Marco Rubio she's raising a ton of money and it's a single digit race is that a sleeper for the democrats uh Hill you you you've spent a billion hours working in Florida you poll there all the time. What do you think? Well, I'll make one quick prediction. I'm talking about the state as a whole. You know, the, the old joke used to be back at the day with Phil Graham, the most dangerous place in Washington was between Phil Graham and a, and a television camera. I think over the next uh, two weeks, the most dangerous place in Florida is going to be between a camera and Ron DeSantis. I mean, I think we're going to we're going to be wall to wall. And of course, everyone's going to be watching the Weather Channel and he's going to be anchoring probably. Um the one thing about Florida is, is you said you believe in sort of like, you know, history and, and Florida is just a close state right now. I mean, even when like, it shouldn't be that close. Look at the governor's race four years ago, a, just a horribly flawed Democrat came within a hair of winning that race. And so the question is, has Ron DeSantis done enough to just completely change the die that's cast there? And, uh, uh, I don't know. I think he's, he's done a lot. I mean, he's, he's, I, I talked to a lot of Floridians. He got family in Florida and, uh, uh, they in earnest feel like he's been a good governor. A lot of them like him better than they did Scott, uh, as governor. And, uh, so, uh, you know, yes, I think the polls sort of suggest that he's got a good lead over Charlie Chris right now, but, uh, the uh, uh the fact that it was so close before makes me want to keep this on a watch i think also the split ticket thing he could begin to work there because uh, again i i might sort of try to make the argument we've already got you know democrats in the senate do we i mean we've got republicans in the senate might we not split our ticket uh i think that that probably marco is not aging well in terms of uh sort of his political career i i you know there's just it seems lackluster, uh, you know, when you're behind Lindsey Graham in terms of uh, theatrics, uh, you know, you're, you're just not as interesting as you once were. And so I think the rising newcomer, people like new, it's, it's you walk down, this, walk down the aisles of the supermarket, the number one word you see coming back at you is new. Even Tide can claim to have a new Tide. And so I think new politicians in Florida uh, particularly in a ticket splitting environment might, might have a shot. You know, it's interesting. We should talk as Florida hacks for a minute about Charlie Chris. Cause if you don't live in Florida, you don't know. He's kind of an interesting political animal. You want to do the Chris bio for a sec? To, to, how would you explain to somebody outside Florida what a Charlie Chris is? Well, it's the, it's the value of a white suit. He's, uh, <laughs> he's the quintessential old time Floridian. He puts people at ease with his white poplin or poplin suits and uh fastidious dresser and uh has kind of a pleasant air about himself i mean i really it's hard to think of a florida politician that florida's had a lot of grumbly guys and sort of where he 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 seems like a game show host almost in his 
ease of just kind of uh, <laughs> I've never heard that, but you're right. Yeah, the Wink Martindale of uh Yeah, he can't Florida be tall. Politics. I mean his rhetoric can heat up a little bit, but uh I think he's a perfect match for a sort of suburban Tampa type swing voter. Uh and I think he could very persuasively even make an argument that like, you know, like like we need to switch it back and forth. Sometimes you need to have a Democrat uh, in the uh, capital and, uh, and, you know, even now you could sort of make the argument is the cabinet, which is important in Florida, other elected officials, we, we need to spread the wealth. And, uh, I think he's probably a good candidate for that. Uh, on the Charlie thing, his, his base has always been Tampa Bay, which is the best base you can have in Florida statewide politics. He started as a Republican. He was the attorney general to talk about the crime issue. His thing was chain gangs. They used to call him chain gang, Charlie. Then he was governor, then some bumps involving Marco Rubio uh, and primary challenges and stuff. And then he presidential as a, hugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he, he, he committed to two presidential candidates to endorse uh, um, and then triple crossed. Anyway, it's quite a quite a story. And then he became a Democratic member of Congress from Tampa Bay. So the one thing about Charlie is he is a survivor. If there was a nuclear holocaust, certain insects would survive, and I think that white suit would climb out of the rubble because they tend to underrate him. So I, in this wave year, I bet on a Republican in Florida, but but Charlie is capable, and if DeSantis bungles the hurricane in Charlie's home area, and Charlie will, it'll be a, a fight clawing for the cameras between the two of them. Uh, we're safe. Yeah, I mean, well, one, I chuckled this weekend and just looking at uh, news on Twitter and and found out that uh, I think on Saturday, both Kemp in Georgia and DeSantis in Florida announced states of emergency uh, in assuming that the hurricane was, as it looks like right now, rightly coming to hit both of those states. And, uh, you know, I thought to myself, with six weeks left, you you know, this is this really is go time if you're for in the governing part of this race, which is you've got to prove to people that the response is is coherent, uh, that you're you know the power gets back on as quickly as possible, that that people who have damage get processed and all those uh, w- with help and aid. So th- this is a big moment for uh, for the governing part of this, and it will be interesting to see. To David's point, you know how much. Uh, you know, you can imagine that you, you, this is where you put on the, the the jacket that says, you know, Florida Department of Emergency Management and go do the hurricane briefing. I mean, it's all fairly tried and true, but it, it'll be interesting to see the briefing, uh, you know, before the hurricane is one thing. The response during and after is certainly another. That'll be certainly closely watched. I think, you know, the, the thing that I find fascinating, many things fascinating about Ron DeSantis, I, I think this latest stunt of chartering an airplane and moving um, uh, migrants, not from Florida, but from Texas uh, to Martha's Vineyard. I, I did see some polling on this that that had about a third of voters approving of that and only half of Republicans. And boy, if there's an issue, you could throw some red meat on the table with Republicans on. Presumably, it would be immigration. And this one seems to have fallen beyond flat. Uh, so I, I, I think sometimes Ron DeSantis tries a whole lot too hard. I'm wondering if you're the supposed, you know, heir to Donald Trump, and we can get into Trump if we want to. But the the heir to Donald Trump, what is what does Ron DeSantis need to get in a in a gubernatorial contest here? To to your mention around Charlie Crist being a good candidate, uh, and 
you know, if history serves us and this is a 52-48 or 52-47 race, does Ron DeSantis project quite the uh, strength that he might otherwise uh, have been projecting the past six months as he's kind of controlled the conservative news cycles? Yeah, you know, I know one person who's not voting for him who votes in Florida, and that's Donald Trump. Um, he's a Chris voter. But what, what do you think, David? I think that probably beating Chris is is not as, as uh, elevating as beating somebody who's more of a mainline liberal swashbuckler. Uh, it, it's like really, you know, maybe Chris is the Manchurian candidate uh, that the Republicans put in there to be the fall guy someday. He's <laughs> starting setting the table. Uh, we love conspiracy theories today. Maybe that's how Chris will be seen. So I would agree. I do think that, <clears throat> you know, your, your manhood may be judged by the size of your margin. Uh, and careful. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, if I'm, you want to cancel I, anybody, it's Dr. David Hill. <laughs> so I'm thinking that the, the bar is set here for a big, you know, he needs to have a big margin. He needs to have a bigger margin than Greg Abbott, for example. Mm. It's clear to me that they're sort of yeah, like that's... interesting sibling rivalry kind of <laughs> yeah. going on. I've heard that Abbott's a little, little, uh, uh, miffed at, uh, DeSantis coming over and stealing some of his Hispanic aliens to, uh, uh, well, because, because, uh, because Abbott was, was busing them to places like Chicago and LA and Washington had bust, you know, several thousand and gotten very little notice for it. I mean, obviously it got some local press in some of the regions where migrants showed up, uh, or landed, but you know, Ron DeSantis comes in, rents a jet, drops him in Martha's Vineyard, calls the press, and kaboom, the whole issue starts. Yeah, no, definite jealousy. And this goes to one thing that DeSantis could screw up, because uh, the crew around him in the governor's office, you know, the geniuses who said, hey, let's give out some free Subway sandwiches, lure a bunch of people onto a van, and then go drop them in Martha's Vineyard and cackle about it on Fox. That same kind of college Republican-level thinking is going to surround him during the hurricane. So wait a minute, you just don't put on the jacket. You're going to fly a helicopter into the storm. You're going to parachute out of, you know, that gimmickry and that kind of stupid high-fiving around the office stuff could could get them to get greedy about hurricane optics and and have a stumble. They don't they don't have a good sense of proportion there. David, two two questions to to sort of segue here. One, any race that you see on the radar that may not be getting the kind of notoriety or distinction that you think, but could be a surprise on election night. And then I want to segue into what I know many of our listeners are fascinated about, which is just the science of how we do this polling and how hard it is these days. Well, one that I would, I would point out, uh, is in Utah by Cleese race and why that's an interesting one is that it tests the theory that Americans are really fed up with both parties. And we have this very unusual situation there where the Democrats punted and are allowing an independent candidate, Mike Lee, to run. So we're getting a clean up, a partisan versus a nonpartisan. Now, that's kind of how I suppose the McMullen people would like to sort of set it up. And I think that there, there is, you know, I see little signs of this at the even sort of local level. A lot of people are kind of trying to run away from party. They, they realize that Americans are fed up with the two major parties and are looking for a change. This is going to give us a bit of a test. Now, it's an odd milieu. Utah is a, 
a different kind of a state. I don't know that we can project from Utah reaction to an independent candidacy, straight up independent choice. Uh, but it, it will, that's one I would be, uh, I would be taking a hard look at here, here in disclosure, I'm doing work for the super PAC there. I was going to say, as luck would have it, we've got a McMullen person here. Oh, well, well, David's a, a McMullen fan too, yeah. I think, but, um, the ad we ran that closed the race and it's now tied in a, in a ends alone poll. And there's some public polls all within like margin stuff is, uh, it had a picture of McConnell who's by the way, in polling, the most unpopular guy in Utah, cause both sides hate him, uh, and Schumer and the whole Washington thing is broken. We kind of went right, right at both of them. And then Evan popped up in some publicly available footage. Uh, so it's an interesting one. Now the McConnell warbirds are on the way. The little red button's been pushed, so the airways are going to get flooded. But um, uh, McMullen's doing a great job of putting up a fight, and I encourage everybody listening. This is a shameless plug here to do what I did, which is send money. It's a fascinating race, and he's uh, he's a great rule of law conservative. Uh, let, let's talk polling. Yeah, we don't have much time left. The mailbag is itching to get out. But yeah. David, is polling harder now, easier? What should people know about it? George Gallup wrote a fascinating book many, many years ago called The Sophisticated Poll Watcher's Guide. I keep a no. a desk. Uh, Seems oxymoronic. <laughs> he was, yeah, yeah, he was, he was trying to help Americans sort of understand this newfangled thing called polling and what to look for. I would say there are two things right now that I would look for in terms of a good or reliable poll. Now, first of all, let me just say. All polling today is tragically flawed. Uh, it, the principal reason is the cooperation rate, the percentage yeah. of people that we try to contact that actually will complete an interview is so tiny is that it, it literally renders a joke of when people quote a margin where this poll is a plus or minus 3%, plus or minus 4%. That's based on a 100% cooperation rate. Those statistics are, that's never advertised. It's not even in the fine print anymore. So the plus or minus 3%, 4%, whatever, <clears throat> maybe in terms of some comparative point of view, maybe a lower is better than a bigger, but that's not your guarantee. If I were trying to be a sophisticated poll watcher, I would look at two things. One, how is the interviewing done? And the one thing we've discovered in our firm, and I think others have discovered, is that a poll that is not at least a multi-mode poll, that is where you do online as well as telephone interviews, is useless. What we see is that certain kinds of voters are willing to do an online poll that would never pick up their phone. For example, higher persons of higher education and higher income will do an online poll, but with a gun to their head, wouldn't pick up the phone and talk to a bolster. Uh, if I don't call landline phones, I miss a lot of less educated Republican and conservative voters who are still using their landlines. And so to have a broadly representative poll, which is probably the best we can hope for anymore, not really a truly random sample, but a broadly representative poll, I would, uh, I would be uh, looking for one that's multi-mode that uses both. Just a quick question. How many voters do you have to call to get a completed phone interview these days? It's embarrassing to say, depending on the state. Uh, for example, I'm polling in Florida, in South Florida, and in Broward County. I've got to call 10,000 probably to get one person to pick up the phone. I mean, it's just horrible. Uh, in Iowa, I might call 100, 150 people, and I would get one person to cooperate. 
So it's hard to give a one wow. size fits all answer to that. But yeah, it's it's ridiculous. When I started this business, I always tell the story. I could start with five numbers, telephone numbers, and I could call those five. And I would be guaranteed 99% of the time to get at least one interview out of those five numbers. Those days are long, long gone. Yeah. And if you're listening, you know, and you think about that poll that you just saw on your cable TV, your local cable TV station, what, what Dr. Hill is saying is it's a lot more expensive to get that sample, right? And if you're that local cable TV station and you've got $5,000 for your local university to do a poll, uh, that $5,000 doesn't go nearly as far. That sample's not as good. The margin of error is almost certainly going to be a lot higher. And that's why you see some of these numbers being way out of whack. Look, there's not a campaign in the country that isn't paying a lot of money to get a poll. Um, they're not doing a lot of horse race polling, but if they were doing a tracking or horse race poll, they're pretty expensive these days. Uh, that's why campaigns don't tend to do a lot of them, mostly because it doesn't tell you anything other than what's uh, what's already happened. So if you're looking at a lot of these, you know, it's, it's why the polls that we tend to talk about on this show or in our newsletter you know, tend to be polls that are done by people like Tony Fabrizio or uh, John Anzalone. They're doing polls for AARP because we have a better trust in kind of the way they're doing it uh, than we might otherwise. I would say the other uh, sophisticated poll watchers tip would be a look at field time. I, the, the, it, it's unquestionable that the longer a poll is in the field, the greater the chance you have to reach a truly representative slash random samples. If you do a one night poll, it's almost certainly going to be terribly flawed. I had someone ask, he said, well, how long will it take to do a poll? I said, well, we could do it one night, but you would want the results. They said, oh, <laughs> you just don't have enough phones. I said, it's not having, having enough phones to do it. It's you just got to keep pounding away at some people. And finally, they, they, they are brought into subjection. I, in the end of going back to what you should look for, I, name brand matters, but I would always look at methodology. Try to see what the methodology is. I, the third point, if I had to find it, I would say waiting. Some people used to say, oh, waiting, that's the, that's the uh, excuse of the scammer. Uh, the only way we can make a poll make sense today is with waiting because there are certain people that are not cooperating and we have to Kind of make sure we yeah you make their voices them. louder because you don't get as many in that hard to do yes, phone correct. calling and multimodal. I mean, what people right. need to know is people always tell me, well, you talk to eight hundred people out of ten million. There's no way. No, no, no. The polling science, the statistical science, is rock solid. The problem is getting a random sample in a world where people won't pick up the phone or won't complete the internet survey. So instead, you get a survey of people who like to talk like to answer the phone and like to play on the internet. And that is not as same as a random sample of all voters. David, you know, obviously uh, one of the things that we've seen in 2016, 2020 was missing Trump voters, hardcore Trump voters with all the new registrants that we seem to be seeing post Dobbs in a lot of these States as a pollster, do you worry more about missing those hardcore Trump voters that you know are going to come out religiously or do you worry a bit about these new registrants that maybe haven't been part of past elections that may change the the percentage of what a sample or, or a voting universe looks like or both the concern with a lot of new voters like in a state like florida is perpetually in this and texas is getting this way is that 
you know, typically if I'm thinking about likely voters, I'm going to want to poll people who voted in the last election of the same genre. So who voted in the last midterm election. But uh, as newcomers arrive in the state, they may change the pH level of the electorate. Uh, but a lot of them won't vote the first time. I mean, I, in Florida, I've studied this very carefully, and it typically takes about six to eight years for most newcomers to really lock in and start becoming regular voters. Because at first, they don't pay attention to state politics. They're still following politics in Wisconsin or Minnesota or Iowa. And uh, but so trying to find that sweet spot when they do lock in on Florida politics to start participate is, is a challenge. With that, let's poll our audience. It's time for the mailbag. It's listener mailbag. If you have a question for the mailbag or you're just mad at Gibbs and want to write them, uh, just send it to hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the 100% tragically free Hacks on Tap newsletter. You get it twice a week by email. It's full of Gibbs and I bloviating on a lot of topics, not just what we talk about here, but everything political. Uh, you can do it by just going to hacksontap.bulletin.com, hacksontap.bulletin.com. Subscribe and enjoy. All right, question number one for Robert Gibbs. This is from Carl. In his 60 Minutes interview, President Biden declared that, quote, the pandemic is over. I wonder if this is a wise thing to proclaim when those who catch even a mild case can develop, quote, long COVID, and his own administration is expecting thousands more infections this fall. At what point can a victory over the pandemic be claimed without the president having a, quote, mission accomplished moment? That being a callback to uh, President Bush on the carrier after the war. What do you say, Robert? Yeah, it's a good question. And I know, uh, you know, by all accounts in, in reading the after action report to the 60 minute interview, uh, many, including the COVID team, were surprised by the president's declaration on this. Uh, I do think there is some danger in it. And I think the administration was smart to kind of quickly get out there and say the pandemic as we know it and some of the act activities that we aren't allowed to do, school closings and whatnot, I, I think that is good to highlight and smart to highlight that those days are indeed behind us, even as we are going to almost certainly deal with this, you know, year over year. It is complicating because the administration is involved in a push to get um, the new vaccine into people. It's involved in getting Congress to fund paying for that new vaccine and testing. And so I do think there's some danger in it. I think um, look, th this this bit President Biden uh, in July of 2021, having the event at the White House and essentially saying we're past the pandemic because we have vaccines, only to see it really hit hard. And I think that was a, a big challenge. I think the, the administration uh, and the doctors were smart to get out there quickly and and kind of give some nuance to it's not not that not that COVID was 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 over and was disappearing, but that the actions of how we governed in the pandemic, closing schools and restaurants and whatnot was largely gone. Yeah. All I know is President Biden was upset with the interview and told his staffers in no uncertain terms. Next time, Sullivan, get it? He's old. He's old. It may have been his sister soldier moment, though, where he kind of told Republicans, I'm not an uptight Democrat. Yeah, no doubt. Like, I'm, you know, the masks and all that kind of stuff are gone. That's sort of, uh, 
Uh, that might have been, and, and the schools are open. That's not a bad message to hear in the suburbs. Murphy, I've got one for you. And man, I'm really interested in this one. I'm, this one, I'm, I'm really do I ask one that I'm actually interested in hearing you blow Vietnam on, but this is one because Matt asked, does it ever come up in political campaign strategy sessions that inundating voters who just want to get through an episode of their favorite show with the same political ads over and over and over again could backfire? <laughs> well, there's a concept called the standard commission on broadcast time, which uh, some consultants are extremely interested in. But no, there, there is some talk of it. I mean, the problem with fatigue is, one, campaign managers don't get fired for firing too many bullets in a close race. So if the other guy's going to drop a piano on your head, they say, well, we'll win by dropping two pianos on your head. The problem is they, it doesn't really make a material difference. The, the key to that is try to put a little creative effort into the ads so they're not all the same. So your ads stand up and even in, in the right situation can entertain a little bit. Uh, that would be one. Two, there's kind of a dictum in campaigns that until people are screaming they've heard it enough, then you're halfway there because you've got to penetrate an electorate that doesn't always pay attention. It's kind of like you ever give money to a candidate, you're going to get 10 million emails asking for more money. And people get very irritated. The problem is 5% of the people or whatever the response rate is send money every time. So the more times they do it, the more money that comes in and they're in a war and they're, we're apologized later. So there's no incentive to run less ads, even when running less ads might be more effective. I, I know a candidate now got a lot of criticism in the primary for a big spend and has wisely switched to a lot of 60-second ads, which people see less but have a more powerful viewing experience with because it's longer and can be better storytelling. I've always in my campaign been a, a fan of 60s, and I think you might see a little of that coming back. But there are very few incentives to run less. Yeah, Murphy, I remember distinctly in the 2012 in the president's reelection campaign sitting in Virginia and just between between uh, uh, timeouts in a football game, just being inundated with ads and 10 days out, picking up the phone and calling acts and saying, I really think we should film <laughs> Obama to camera saying, I'm not going to I'm going to use the next 15 seconds to tell you I'm not running any more ads in Virginia for this race, because it, it just seemed to me like uh, it, it just it, it, to your point particularly if you make it sound like every other ad, people just tune out. It becomes the teacher from Charlie Brown. Oh, and look like every other ad, right? They become a cliche. We did a fun thing with Lamar Alexander. I think it was in 96 where we had an ad uh, when all the things were all over MUR and the New Hampshire station, which is now an ad from Lamar Alexander. And it came on Merry Christmas and then nothing else. <laughs> Pleasant music, you know, it's kind of a way to stand out. All right, Dr. David Hill, Dr. Doom the rock and roll political pollster. Here's the final question for you from Paul. If Trump is the candidate in 2024, can he replicate his voter turnout from 2020 or might enough hours have had enough of his antics and stay home, which would allow a moderate Dem, maybe not Biden, to win? Got a lot of moving parts to that question. It yeah. didn't work in alien invasion, but, but what do you think? Big hypotheticals there. Well, he's going to have to do better than replicate his, his vote because he lost. <laughs> Good I mean, point. Good point. See, you, you are a rocket scientist. You need a PhD to figure that out. Uh, so, <laughs> so he's going to have to get some new voters, and that's the part that's a little bit iffy-dicey. Now, it comes down to individual states and electoral college, and there may be some, like Florida and Texas are two states that have a lot of new voters moving in. It might change uh, the results. 
Uh, of course, this is the thing that drives pollsters crazy. We know that about 80% of the voters vote every time they open the polls, but there's this other group of voters that are sometimes in and sometimes not in. And sometimes the reason they're not in is like, oh, there's a sudden family medical emergency. It's not like they made some grandiose decision not to vote that day. And so I, when you're basing your campaign on a very tight turnout scenario, it seems to be you're building on a house on a foundation of sand. It's just really tough to say we're going to win by making people vote that usually don't vote. Right, right. Very hard to do. The Democrats try that with off-year voters. And part of the question this year is, will Roe do that to finally turn out some young voters? Well, I want to thank you, David Hill of Hill Research Consultants, for joining us today. Robert, great to speak with you as always. We got a newsletter to get out, so I got to get back to work. Yeah, and War Eagle, Dr. Hill, thank you for uh, for spending some time with us. War Eagle, anyway, despite right. the football team. <laughs> Fox, let's play the music to come out here. Next time, Wolverines. See you guys. Later.